So welcome. Uh, today we are discussing Argyria Manuel's New Left Review article, White Settler Colonialism and the Myth of Investment Imperialism from 1972. Uh, I think this article can best be summarized as, a, as an attempt to interject a theory of settler colonialism into the debates around imperialism, decolonization, and neocolonialism uh, within the period of the 70s and, and the sort of beginning of the post-colonial era that Emmanuel is writing in. He begins by saying that there has been a sort of certain piety towards Lenin's theory of imperialism that he'd like to discuss a little bit further. He calls it like a quasi-religious attitude. And then he has a very interesting line where he says that the theories of neocolonialism and neo-imperialism have sort of been invented to address uh, a lack of understanding of what's been happening in the decolonization period um, in the 60s that he is sort of observing the end of. And, in, and specifically, he's observing the end of it where a lot of the countries that are decolonizing are just falling back into the orbit of imperialism, even though they're undergoing a sort of uh, indigenization and, and independence process that isn't really independent. And what I think is really fascinating with respect to that is that he, in this article, is very uh, specifically referencing the Congo. I think in terms of contextualizing that, it's important to notice that Emmanuel was in the Congo, uh, specifically in the Belgian Congo, beginning in the 40s and 50s. And in that process, he went to Stanleyville. He interacted with sort of Lumumbist groups and other groups that were opposing Belgian colonialism as well as settler colonialism. So he had some direct encounters with uh, the Congo independence movements, Lumumba, and other, you know, freedom fighters in the Congo. And throughout the article, he expresses some opinions about, about these different uh, figures, and I guess we can get to that later on. But to begin with, he discusses first, uh, as the title implies, white settler colonialism in the theory of imperialism and how it operates. In the section entitled The Antagonism Between the White Settlers and Imperialism, he talks about how there hasn't been a significant incorporation of settler colonialism within the theory of imperialism and specifically referencing the Congo. He talks about, for example, the figure of Moïse Shambé uh, in the Katanga secession, where in the 50s, Shambé declared independence of a specific province, and it was interpreted by many Marxists as a imperialist gambit by the Belgians. But what Emmanuel is trying to argue, I think, is to say that the white settlers within the Congo actually led the push behind the secession and in many cases were attempting not to act in the interest of imperialists, but actually Emmanuel makes the claim that they were in, in their own sort of way anti-imperialist, of course, not from a leftist perspective, but in the sense of trying to create uh, settler colonial white states, as he calls them. And the reason that these were often crushed, as in the case of uh, Rhodesia in modern day Zimbabwe, in the case of apartheid South Africa, uh, in the case of Algeria, where he makes references to the Organisation Ami Secrète, the, the OAS, the faction that was fighting De Gaulle in Algeria. He talks about how the imperialists in the finance, in finance capital in Europe often wanted to stop their own settlers, who, as he says, were threatening nearly everywhere to secede and form white states. They would in many cases be in their own interest rather than in the interests of the imperial power in Europe. And he points to some examples like America, 
and Canada. And I guess we could also imply Australia, New Zealand as other examples of countries where white settlers created their own states in rebellion against their empires that ran the, these colonies. And in the process, were able to turn these white settler states into more powerful countries than, than the imperialist countries, which is Emmanuel's claim. He points to an example of Canada, Tanzania, and the UK, where he says, and this is very much in the context of his argument about unequal exchange, I would say, because he argues uh, that in this line, he begins and says, the essential element is trade as fits his kind of overarching theory. On this level, it makes an enormous difference to the parent country, whether power is taken over by the white settlers or by the natives. A native state is far more exploitable, commercially speaking, than a white state whatever the volume of the trade flows involved. Britain can sell and buy much more in Canada than in Tanzania, but she exploits Tanzania, whereas she is exploited by Canada. In one, the English settlers took power and the other, the natives. The result is that today, Canada is much less English than Tanzania is. So I think that's, that's a sort of good introduction to his theory of settler colonialism and how it engages with and sort of contradicts ideas of neocolonialism, why, uh, countries that decolonized ended up in many cases still being part of the orbit or in, in some cases very much Francisized or Anglicized, whatever word you, you would want to say, um, and didn't declare really any sufficient independence compared to countries like America, Canada, Australia, and in, in for a period of time, certainly Rhodesia and South Africa, which were trying to create these white settler states where they could more easily uh, exploit the native population and not allow an imperial country to exploit the native population. And then he gets into discussing how this relates to Lenin's theory. He talks about how this is engaging more with a, the international contradiction um, between international capital and, and settlers and, and talks about how it lends itself to revisiting Lenin's idea that investment imperialism or the flow of capital from uh, the imperial powers to the exploited or underdeveloped nations is the form of imperialism and instead kind of tries to situate the settler colonialism as I would say an example of his overall argument in unequal exchange. Um, maybe that, that's a good place to sort of kind of like stop the introduction and, and begin to discuss a little bit more. So I wonder your thoughts on, on all of that and how this relates to unequal exchange um, as part of Emmanuel's overall theory, or, or just any reflections on the article in general? Um, yeah, I mean, like, this is just kind of a small, small point, I guess. But when you're talking about the um, white settler states and their conflict with imperialism, you're talking about Australia and New Zealand, but I, I guess it's kind of worth mentioning that they didn't really, like, those states never had any period of conflict, really, with, like, Britain. Um, they, like, throughout their history, the sort of like the, the white governments there, they were sort of, um, they were always very, you know, deferent to the, like the imperial, imperial center. Sometimes the imperial center would tell them to stop sort of like massacring the indigenous people. Uh, so like aggressively. And I think you can sort of, it's an interesting uh, dynamic of what Emmanuel talks about there in that, in that sort of case. But um, it's also just like in the article, Emmanuel also talks about how Israel uh, modern day Israel is uh, this, it's, it's not only a uh, um, sort of a direct instrument of imperialism, but it's also its own, it has its own sort of interests that can sometimes actually diverge with those of imperialism uh, because 
of its status as this um like aggressive like uh steadily imperialist um like project right that's not only uh you know obeying the orders of uh, of washington or whatever and um in in that case in that sense you can sort of see where like on the while there's simultaneously there's interest on the side of imperialism uh for the existence of israel because uh it divides the arab world uh it makes their resources um uh, you know, it cheapens their resources through the constant wars that the Arab world's engulfed in, uh, through like Israel's like uh, sort of connivance, whatever. Um, so, and but then also, of course, Israel in this this population has interest in its existence. So there's kind of a, an overlap in the interests of the settler uh, settler state and the global imperialism. Um, and then in Australia or New Zealand, it's like that's there's a total overlap. Like I mean, there's there's never really been any case where uh their interests have like significantly diverged uh the work of the um so, so the history uh straight up genocide of uh, the indigenous people in uh in australia and there were also often cases where hearing reports of these like mass massacres of like indigenous villages um when the imperial like when london heard these reports say in, in the late 19th early 20th century they would often kind of react uh and say like you know you can't do this to the australians like you know the, the white settlers that you know this is these are like the indigenous are imperial subjects as well um and i think you can sort of probably there's some kind of dynamic there of um the uh, London may be worrying about the white settlers in Australia getting too kind of like, I guess, aggressive and ambitious and make trying to, you know, pull America, right? Like have a sort of uh, uh, white settler revolution in that sense. But um, I think also there's also a dynamic in which um, they weren't only worried about, you know, Australia becoming too economically independent with these like if there was some hypothetical white settler revolution. I'm not sure they were so worried about that, but there was also just the simple element that like the uh, the British crown always and the, the imperial center, let's say like imperialism in, in general, because, you know, in, in that period, it sort of basically coincided if we're talking about the um, London as a political center and like global finance capital in the late 19th century. Then it was also like they were in the rational sort of sense. They wanted to minimize the amount of like um, wars military conflict in the regions that they like you know drew revenue from because you know obviously wars make it more difficult to um you know operate mines and have whatever economic activity because you know people are killing each other and so on and so on so they want to just keep stability you know like stability was was what they were all about um so that's also an aspect i think uh, a bit more of a banal aspect i guess um yeah that was the first comment i had um oh yeah, yeah really good points i i wanted to just jump in on the comment on israel which is very i think very interesting um i want to just read exactly what he says his quote on israel because i think it's it's important he says as for israel it is all too often forgotten that if this country represents a spearhead of imperialism in the particular present international context of antagonism between the two great blocks this is only a result of special circumstances its true nature is to be a mass of small white settlers spreading out more and more to colonize an underdeveloped territory. It is this that makes their conflict with the peoples of this region so ruthless, even where the latter live under pro-Western regimes, which are themselves satellites of imperialism. In spite of its circumstantial and unnatural alliance with American imperialism, and then in parentheses he says, which is not all that reliable, 
as the recent quarrel about frontiers with William Rogers shows. I don't exactly know what he's referencing historically, but I think the point overall is, is as, as you're saying, that sometimes there can be these debates as in the case of Australia. But then he says, Israel is a secessionist colonial state. Its foundation was the object of a long and bloody struggle with England, who played the role of the imperialist parent country. And then, and then just one more quote to kind of, or discuss a little bit further, uh, is his section on page 44, where he does a really interesting treatment of the Anglo-Boer War in the context of the theory that he's sort of proposing. And he says that so far as South Africa was concerned, uh, uh, Chamberlain, the British prime minister, was much more apprehensive of the setting up of republics by the English white settlers than of Boer domination in the Transvaal. What were to be avoided at all costs, he added, were new Canada's or United States. And then that's he says that's why Great Britain annexed portions of South Africa rather than allowing it to be a dominion as they did Canada or the US. And in particular, he says that the British administration could often be more uh, in favor of, of native or of black South African rights than of Boers or the sort of settler populations in South Africa. And he says that the Boers' hatred of British domination was largely caused by English protection of the natives. It was, it was because they considered the abolition of slavery to be intolerable that thousands of Boers emigrated from the Cape Colony in 1835, starting the great treks that resulted in the foundings of other secessionist republics in Natal, Orange, and Transvaal. You see the extent to which this kind of settler colonial tradition is still discussed today with the Afrikaans populations versus people of British descent and there are allegiances to, to different factions of capital, you could say, that there's always been a stronger secessionist desire among Afrikaans populations. And I think that's also seen, as, our, our, as Emmanuel says at the end, well, for one, he argues that the British support for the native population was certainly not for humanitarian reasons, but often more, uh, a, what he says, a deceptive pretext justifying English imperialism's policy of using force against the Boers. But he's, he talks about South Africa and Rhodesia in the same context and talks about how both of them represented these sort of secessionist white states meant to try and oppose British imperial rule specifically. Of course, as he's arguing throughout, this is definitely not like a, a progressive in any means resistance to imperialism, but it's more of a desire to create in the case of like apartheid in Rhodesia, trying to create their own white settler colonies that are that are internally dominant of a native population rather than allowing the settlers and the native population to be ruled by imperialists, which led to horrifying consequences in the case of apartheid in Rhodesia. In the context of the Congo, he talks about Moïse Shambé and Katanga versus Lumumba. And it's really interesting how he talks about Lumumba because in, in some cases he says that Lumumba at first was on the side of, uh, of finance capital on the side of liberal finance, which is why uh, Emmanuel talks a lot about how Lumumba was initially supported by Belgian liberal parties and, and Belgian finance, whereas Shambé was seen as representing the interest of, of the Belgian settlers in the Congo. But he, but he has this, this fascinating note where he says, um, at, at a previous presentation of my thesis in Paris, one of the participants in the discussion reproached me with presenting Shambay as, quote, the good man and Lumumba as the traitor. I don't know which part of my text could have caused such a misunderstanding, which has me saying the exact opposite of what I think. 
Shambe was quite simply the total traitor. Lumumba's case is more complicated. And of course, we can say there are many reasons he would argue this. Of course, Lumumba turned to the Soviet Union later on, and that's definitely the reason he was eliminated by imperialism and by the CIA. But he's he's trying to maybe argue that the case of what Shambe was trying to do, like uh, trying to set up another Rhodesia, another South Africa, or another Canada or the U.S., was far more deadly to the to the native population uh, than this sort of abstract impersonal rule by imperialism may have been. And of course, that's like maybe a, a contentious argument in the case of how devastating imperialism has turned to be. But I do agree with his argument with respect to saying the defeat of these efforts of settler colonial states like the apartheid regime in Rhodesia was absolutely necessary. Um, and even if that's it's later led to, like in the case of South Africa, still being after apartheid ruled by imperialism nowadays, you could maybe you could make the argument as I think he is that that first defeat of apartheid in a settler colonial state was very necessary and historically progressive. So that's just sort of my interpretation. I think it gets into a lot of interesting implications about you know political debates about uh, decolonization and and nationalism. And yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on sort of his ideas there. Yeah, well, like one of the reasons why I think this article is really, uh, really important is because there's a really, I think, like a dangerous tendency in uh, like left wing Marxist uh, thought to kind of, you know, they look at some, you know, you see a war somewhere in the third world, and you just sort of like idealize it, I guess, right? And you and automatically idealize the rebels, right? Like if they're rebels, if they're small, you know, it's kind of like like the 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 small guys, right, or whatever. Like um, uh -huh. the underdogs. Uh, and the underdogs. That's right. And um, like you know, and and Emmanuel talks about this how like when there was the Boer War, Lenin like wrote an article kind of like praising the Boers basically right where he says like oh yeah. you know the boys they're sort of like fighting against imperialism you know it's mm -hmm. awesome but like these were the boys they were like you know their their slogan was like you know <laughs> unite for white proletarian Af like africa exactly. right? like yeah. uh like there's no way you can call this progressive i mean this is like uh and uh, and then you also had like and then you had mao supporting um uh, well, Biafra, right? This is another. I mean, Biafra is a, a, a kind of a bit of a more complicated case. Although I think, I think as well, there was the thing where Mao supported. Mm, I, I don't know about Katanga. I don't think Katanga, but uh, I'm pretty sure. Well, or, yeah. With with, with, <coughs> with a Biafra, yeah, with Biafra, yeah. Um, and there's a. I really recommend we can have it in the comments. A really great friend of mine, Chester, uh, from the Nigerian diaspora, who's writing, who's been writing some stuff uh, about the Biafra, Biafra war, which is a very like, um, mm, I said I don't know, like misunderstood or sort of like uh, conflict. And um, anyway, and I mean, basically, often when you have you know, in wars, often and uh, there are plenty of cases where you have actually like very reactionary rebel forces that are. In some cases, also supported by, let's say, like imperialism, uh, to sort of maintain the uh, the global sort of inequality between like the minority of rich nations, majority of poor nations. Uh, sometimes supported by imperialism, um, or sometimes just like totally reactionary on their own merits. Um, and uh, often, yeah. And I think one of just like the sort of simple takeaways from Manuel's article is that, like, you know, 
you really shouldn't rush to support some like you know rebel group or whatever like you know military group in like ex-conflict you should really like do the research first and like even if you do the research you should like i don't know <laughs> probably be kind of careful about taking some like really aggressive stance about it uh you know unless there's some you know like some you know really great sort of marxist organization whatever whatever but um even then you know you got you've got to be careful like things things are pretty complicated in real life uh and i think that's a really good reminder that we shouldn't like get let ourselves get you know, taken away by emotion, like, oh, the underdog, isn't that awesome, so and so on. So, yeah, that's just one note I had. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I think it, it gets into, in the footnote that he talks about that, it, it's the same point where he, where he says, he, he clarifies his position and says, you know, of course, England didn't care any, any more about Black South Africans than the Boers did, but there was simply a different desire for the form of domination that it would take. And then he says, this did not justify Lenin for having so ardently espoused the cause of the Boers against England in 1900. And the same goes for Mao backing the Biafra secession in 1969. I think it also, another thing that was funny to me coming out of that is even the critique that he's making of a sort of desire for uh, secessionist states. Because as he's talking about in all of these cases, the Boers were, were trying to create a Boer Republic uh, in the Transvaal in South Africa. Biafra was a secessionist state, Katanga was a secessionist state. So he's he's referencing these desires to break apart the post-colonial state, or in, in some cases, even the colonized state and create these secessionist white republics um, in all cases that are, because they're broken down in, into very small fragments are so easily able to be taken over by a settler population. Um, I think his his references throughout to the OAS in Algeria and and the conflict with France is very fascinating because he has this line where he's he's talking about uh, the Battle of Algiers and the Algerian Revolution and he talks about how the uh, the Liberation Front of Algeria um, is defeated at the Battle of Algiers by France and then the war at that point is only between uh, the OAS and France and it's and the Arab Algerian population for a brief time doesn't even play a significant role and that in his viewing of things that even like it leads to the the war simply being between the settler population and the colonial empire and that in that case France and de Gaulle taking a decision to allow for the liberation of Algeria becomes you can more easily read that as a uh, desire to give some power to the native population that will be backed by France, rather as, as Emmanuel was saying throughout, instead of allowing the settlers to secede and create their own white states. So I think even as you're saying it, it, le it leads to a more cautious take on a lot of these conflicts rather than simply going forward and, and always uh, sort of lending support to decolonization, you see that there, there was another really interesting note that he made about, oh, it was, because uh, he's, he's writing this in the 70s. I think it's, it's worth contextualizing that because he, he writes this interesting line very near the beginning uh, where he says, an accident of history led to the colonization of the Congo through a combination of Leopold's personal ambition, the lack of resistance of leading Belgian capitalists. And, but he, that is sort of like a, a plausible theory to him. But then he says, 
but that Angola and Mozambique should be passionately clung to by Portugal today against all odds, although financial capitalism is practically inexistent in that country. And although the highly imperialistic CIA finances the liberation movements of their inhabitants, cannot in any way be the result of investment and monopoly imperialism, whether directly or indirectly, positively or negatively. There's a, it's funny that he you know, writes in the 70s while the wars in Angola and Mozambique are going on. He also references quite overtly the fact that in, in both cases, the CIA and the US weren't trying to reimpose Portuguese imperialism or colonialism over Angola or Mozambique. They're actually funding these separate uh, pro-Western rebel groups like Jonas Mvimbi and the UNITA in Angola or Renamo in Mozambique, which were against Portuguese colonialism, but were also equally against the Soviet Union and uh, the communist factions of the MPLA and Free Limo. So it, it's, as you're saying, I think a very good point because you referenced, you referenced Mao maybe having like the wrong opinion on Biafra. And I think in, in cases, as you mentioned, I think you were mentioning with respect to China, uh, some, you know, some definitely some controversial positions taken throughout the post-colonial period and the decolonization struggle in Angola and in and, uh, the Congo, where they supported Mobutu Sesiseko and Zaire uh, and other very much pro-Western factions in the Congo. And in Angola, in the case of Angola, supported Jonas Savimbi supported the FNLA led by Holden Roberto, which were two factions that maybe, okay, maybe were against Portuguese colonialism, but just because they were, didn't mean they were, were in support of communism or Marxism in any way. They very much were pro-Western groups. And you find a, an and it's a product of the Sino-Soviet split, of course, but it's also like a, the, this weird period of history where a lot of the Chinese political decisions in Africa are sort of overlapping with American, like the CIA supports you find on these like Wikipedia pages for who supported who in the war in Angola, you'll coincidentally find that China and the US were like on the same side in some of these conflicts and or supporting the same actors, if not openly declaring themselves in an, an alliance or whatever. So it leads to a kind of, and, and that's what I think is the interesting political implication of this is it it is a, uh, sort of a caution against this blind support for, I think sometimes people inaccurately portray Emmanuel as like a, like I've heard, you know, like John Smith in some of his writings has referred to Emmanuel as a bourgeois nationalist. I think that's a weird opinion necessarily to make because in this, in a case like this, he seems very much against uh, a sort of blind support for all anti-colonial struggle and far more in favor of this an awareness that sometimes anti-colonial struggle can lend itself to settler colonialism, can even lend itself to the imperialist struggle or the support of imperialism in some cases. Yeah, and I mean, um, I really, I think it's important what you said about this kind of like, I mean, this uh, blind, I guess, uh, celebration of uh, uh, the creation of new territorial entities uh, because you know, like it's it's you know, if you read stuff in like the sort of the heyday of like uh, you know third worldism decolonization in the, in the seventies and so on, in the sixties, um, you know, it was common knowledge, especially after like you know the Congo, Katanga, and so on and so on. Um, it was common knowledge that like you know the creation of some kind of like new 
you know, state within the boundaries of like, you know, ex -decol uh, newly decolonized state. You know, this is like, you know, it's basically always some kind of scheme, imperialist scheme and so on. And, um, you know, and, and I think nowadays there's kind of this kind of weird, I don't know, like liberal sort of strain, I guess you, them, you often see where it's like, you know, if there's ex-suppressed nationality in a country, they automatically need their own state. Right. Like they, they just need it. Right. And I think this is really problematic, you know, because, I mean, the creation of a new state, I mean, first of all, it often involves like very like bloody wars, uh, you know, with huge like casualties on all sides. And then afterwards, you know, um, who's going to rebuild these countries? Often like they don't, that doesn't really happen. And then like, you know, ultimately, I think uh, the progressive sort of solution should should be like, you know, giving, you know, obviously minority rights to different minority nationalities and also having a sort of all around uh, program for like social development uh, of the entire country that sort of gives a reason for minorities uh, and all people of the country to stay within the country. But uh, splitting the country up into small pieces, I mean, this is the strategy of imperialism, you know, like in, in Iraq, in Yugoslavia, and so on. Um, and uh, it's, wor it's worked perfectly, right, to like sort of identify some minorities that, you know, need savings supposedly, and then like, you know, use these areas to extract oil. You know, that's what happened in Iraq um, uh, with uh, Kurdistan and so on. So anyway, uh, it's definitely, I think Emmanuel's writings are relevant that way. Uh, I would I would say, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things you could reference for this. So like, I know there was a recent uh, testimony or a recent committee hearing in, in the US at Congress where they were discussing the need to uh, to decolonize Russia or something like that, some kind of rhetoric like that. And that's obviously not quite the same thing as what Emmanuel is talking about with the global South. But I think, I think it's getting to your point of what you're saying about the need to kind of like justify uh, imperial interests behind the banner of national liberation for, for some minority as you're discussing. Yeah, and I mean, like, uh, if I'm, I think the best, probably one of the best examples uh, today is, I mean, like the whole situation with uh, U.S. support for various like Kurdish groups uh, in, in I mean, obviously in, in Iraq, but also in Syria, and then like uh, you know the way that this is uh, this relationship is used for like uh, you know special benefits for U.S. companies for uh, oil extraction and so on. Uh, but the uh, about the relevance of this article, like the in terms of yeah, I mean, you're right. There's not really you know with the um, it is no longer apartheid South Africa as like a sort of, you know, legal sort of system. And uh, I mean, Israel still exists. So obviously this article is still, I think, quite relevant in terms of Israel. Um, otherwise, but the, the, the reason I find this article still very relevant is like it also still, um, apart from the actual sort of like the situation of like, you know, settler societies, uh, it also touches on the whole uh, I guess contradiction, you can say, uh, relationship between um, the high wage populations of, of certain countries and what you can call, like, I guess, global capitalism, you know, like, you know, high, high finance or whatever, you know, um, um, and the relationship between these two. And, you know, and this is a very popular topic. I guess if you're thinking about the, uh, the actual, I guess, you know, constituency, you can say, for, um, for imperialism and i mean like it might, i mean i think because we, we, we were planning to talk about the actual sort of emmanuel's theory because emmanuel kind of also gives 
lots of his theory of imperialism in the second part of this article uh, when he's critiquing the investment imperialism sort of thing. And like, you know, to, to sort of, to say it really sort of like simply, I mean, Emmanuel's theory of imperialism is one where, you know, like uh, sort of a rich country, you know, has different sort of protectionist barriers on its own market. And then it sort of gets other weaker countries to buy its, to buy its products deindustrializing the weaker countries and like setting them into this kind of like permanent depression because they have uh, um, they have no local manufacturing and they're kind of you know swamped this huge trade deficit and so on and so on um, and uh, you know and if you think about I mean obviously this this situation of imperialism is great for the you know like the workers and masses of the uh, imperialist country because they have lots of jobs you know they've got lots of income and blah 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 um, but, uh, you know, if you think about the perspective of like some kind of like uh, large scale, uh, you know, financial financial capitalist, uh, you know, there, there, there can be cases where um, this situation where they would actually rather have some kind of development uh, in the poor country. Right. You know, it's like a new market. Right. And, you know, there's lots of obviously enthusiasm for uh in like you know talking about like you know high finance or whatever about uh sort of development of china and so on uh because you know it makes sense you know it's a huge new market emerging lots of opportunity for like new new investments and uh new different like you know profit making opportunities and so on and so on uh but the rise of china uh is also has been you know like it has challenged the um uh, it's broken down many of the privileges held by, uh, you know, first world workers, American workers. Uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, many, it's, it's fashionable now to say, you know, oh, you know, America's now a third world country. Like, I don't think that's true, but like, uh, but it has like, you know, China, Chinese competition is definitely, um, American workers are no longer as privileged as they were. I think they're still very like, you know, very, very privileged. So, but, but no longer as much as they were. Um, so there is this aspect where you have this contradiction between like, uh, which is what Emmanuel talks about in this article, between like you know, global global capitalism, we can say, and what we can call like, you know, labor aristocracy, right? Because the, um, the, you know, white settler population projects like Israel or, you know, Australia or America or, you know, Rhodesia, this is like an extreme case of labor aristocracy, right? Uh, well, maybe not extreme, but this is like the way I kind of often think about it is this is, this is what a sort of like, this is the initial stage, right? When they still, maybe they haven't, you know, destroyed all of native population uh, or, you know, like in Australia, um, this kind of like violent sort of juridically guaranteed form of settled colonialism. Uh, but then once they sort of guarantee their hold, they can sort of like just live as, you know, labor aristocracy, like we have in America today, you know, like you don't have legal, uh you know jim crow laws in america anymore but that's because you know they've already benefited from the you know long period of settled colonialism and slavery and so on um anyway so what, what i'm just trying to say is that i think this article is still relevant for thinking about the contradiction between global capitalism and labor aristocracy uh class yeah yeah it's a really good point and i think uh, you know as you're pointing out it is to say that the relevance remains it, to the extent to which uh, the leading imperial powers of the world, like the U.S. and Canada, are themselves settler colonial countries, and therefore, you know, Emmanuel's treatment of, of settler colonialism and how it relates to imperialism almost leads to this own. Because because you could feel in reading it that he's attempting to understand why, uh, you know, why France and Britain, which you know, or I guess you could say the original colonial, original imperialist powers, 
or have been displaced by by specifically by America as a settler colonial society. And that leads to a lot of interesting points, especially in the second section, which I think he's certainly attempting to comment on. Uh, he, I would say his critique of Lenin's theory of imperialism is could read as very harsh, um, but I think it is also necessary to read it and, and make relevance of it. This, of course, is something that a lot of the uh, interpreters of, of the manual have looked at is how he is, is critiquing and perhaps offering a more cogent theory of imperialism than, than Lenin had. But for, for example, in, in the section where he talks about, um, he talks about like what is wrong with, with his theory. And he has this interesting note on page, uh, it's on page 53, where he's talking about the failings of the, of the traditional theory and he says that on, in point three, to say that North American imperialism has taken over the investment role would not save the theory since the present amount of US investments and even the total amount of those of all the advanced capitalist countries added together is an insignificant quantity compared with the investments of England alone in 1914. So it's to say that if you simply look at it as uh, this investment model that, that Lenin and, and before him Hobson were using uh, and try and understand the rise of American hegemony through that lens, you would be, as he's saying, very confused because the US hasn't necessarily made significantly more investments uh, as such than, than England had. Uh, and I think just to comment on the labor aristocracy point of it, there, this comes in later of, towards the very end of the article on page 56, the last second to last page, where he talks about um, why he talks about in again in point three when he's talking about some conclusions he says it's not the export of capital that prevented the development of backward countries and marx was right in theory when he forecast that india would become a capitalist country like england that right there is a very is a very interesting point um when discussing the way in which uh you know the the development of capitalism in a country like india which we could today consider semi-peripheral um, but then later on, when he says uh, the essential factor in this situation, or first he says this reversal happens when the servicing of earlier debts exceeds the influx of new capital, and when, in addition, the little surplus that has produced that has been produced on the spot is sent abroad by local capitalists and invested in the developed countries. The essential factor in this situation was the considerable rise in the standard of living of the masses within the great capitalist countries, following a particularly successful reformist struggle of the working classes that Marx could not have foreseen. And then he, the conclusions from that that he says are, as you were pointing out, you know, a discussion of the labor aristocracy and, and talking about how in his final point, point four, he says, international antagonisms cannot always be automatically reduced to the terms of a class struggle. We must pass from factory antagonisms to national antagonisms. I think that is a, a very interesting point. And then he concludes to say, on this level, there is no common measure between, on the one hand, the contradictions of great international capital and the underdeveloped peoples, and on the other hand, the total enslavement and even physical extermination with which some of these peoples are threatened by true colonialism, which is that of the white settlers and their states where, they, where these exist. So it's a very interesting point to see as he's comparing the difference between a country like Australia, like the United States, like Canada, where there was an extermination process and a, a genocidal process by a settler colonial population, and that leads it, it leads itself to a different kind of context for imperialism and can perhaps explain the rise of a country like the United States, as opposed to the 
you know, more impersonal form of, of imperial rule by Britain. Um, and of course, reading all of this in the context of unequal exchange to say that rather than viewing this simply through the, the guise of, of investment, uh, and it has to be this classical Leninist theory of investment, instead of reading it through the relations of domination by, from, of one nation by another, by an exploiter nation, and, uh, by an exploited nation and exploiting nation, we can understand it more through the lens of trade, super exploitation of wages, which I think is his overall point to contribute. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, um, Emmanuel's kind of argument about like U.S. Uh, I mean, he doesn't really make this so often, about, particularly about the U.S., but in general about like about imperialist, uh, what, what he considers the imperialism is that when you have basically like the high wages, uh, wages can continue can keep on rising in one country because they start importing cheaper goods from a poorer country, uh, which offsets the, uh, the you know decrease potential decrease in profits uh, if wages increase in their own country. That way, the wages can, wages can continue increasing without like hitting on profits so much because they start importing cheaper goods from a lower wage nation. So there's this relation where they sort of and I mean if you look at the rise of America after World War II, uh, what really started happening? I mean like they. Um, they started really importing uh, really a large amount of raw materials after after World War II. And in general, it's because it's after World War II when you have like the sort of really astronomical increase uh, in wage inequality between like the first world and the third world. Uh, before World War II, it was like, you know, like about five, eight times higher in the first world. And after World War II, it, you know, it starts rising to you know, 20 times higher, so on and so on, 30 times higher. Uh, and there's a really great book about uh, Emmanuel's work by a uh, scholar, Brolin, and uh, he cites the uh, really interesting economic historian Bayrock, and who who looks at this wage inequality. And he also Bayrock looks at how it was only after World War II that uh, you start that the West, the Europe, and uh, and America that they became dependent on uh, third world uh, raw material imports. Before that, they were uh, self sufficient uh, in their production. Of, and they were actually exported. Like the first world used to be exporters of raw materials, but then after World War II, when wages are increasing so much, they start needing to get their raw materials cheaper, and they become importers, net importers from the third world, uh, of oil and so on, and various different other uh, raw materials and iron, blah blah. Um, so, yeah, in terms of imperialism, this is sort of more the the way that he sees it, where there's this interest in the high wage nations to keep other nations low wage to keep guaranteed the sort of high living standard of the domestic of the of the rich country the imperialist country uh and this uh, yeah and this doesn't require you know there are you know there can be investments in some mine but they can also just be imports and if there are investments to you know get x raw material or to get you know sort of like the supply chain you know nowadays we have sort of different supply chains where like you know manufacturing is done in low-wage countries and so on uh, first of all, it doesn't have to be an investment. It could be subcontracting uh, where it's not actually recorded as an investment by the rich country uh, but, or it could be import. But if it is an investment, still there's a tendency for the, uh, like the uh, monetary value of this investment to be, um, um, to be often underestimated because the fact that Emmanuel's theory is about the sort of unequal exchange where the low money wages of the poor countries mean that its exports are uh, you know devalued they're cheaper than they would be if they were high wage uh which then means if you know the the monetary value of these investments are, are, are lower um 
um, because and then so this is also another way in which sort of you know it's it's not really the best idea to sort of try and you know measure sort of you know is this country imperialist or not by just looking at the monetary value of their investments and this is another one of these big points you know yeah I think those are all great points um, I wanted to sort of I can I don't know if you've read this article but I, I'm I'm curious to know if you have there's a a monthly review article by by Harry Magdoff. Um, and it's called Primitive Accumulation and Imperialism, where he, this is one of the few things I've read, which is like um, someone in kind of the monthly review, like field talking about Emmanuel or kind of like commenting on, on him in some way, but he, Magdoff reads this article uh, on white settler colonialism to talk about uh, Emmanuel and, and he heavily critiques him and, and talks about how Emmanuel doesn't understand uh, Lenin um, and, and he doesn't understand Lenin's theory of imperialism. Um, you know, he has, a, he has a lot of uh, different things where he says he considers Emmanuel's analysis of imperialism a step back from Lenin, uh, which is definitely a contentious claim to make. But I, I want to situate that maybe in the discussion um, because I found, I found reading this one and reading Emmanuel's article, both quite interesting because there is this contention over Lenin's theory of imperialism. Uh, as Mag Magdoff writes this line where he says, uh, Emmanuel goes over to the other extreme. He first rejects Lenin's theory of imperialism based on an oversimplified and false interpretation of it, and then jumps back to the question of white settler colonialism. Um, and, then he, and then he says, the fundamental issue in this discussion is one of approach and a way of thinking. Emmanuel's abstract approach to the problem of capital investment is simply not correct. And trying to fit it into a grandiose Marxist framework does not work. I wonder your thoughts on all of that and kind of like Emmanuel's critique of Lenin, as well as this, this writer for Monthly Review, I guess his subsequent polemic with Emmanuel on the subject. My, my reading, I guess I would say of, of all of it is that definitely reading this article by Magdoff, it's funny, it's funny to have read Emmanuel's article where he talks about this sort of quasi-religious attitude around Lenin's imperialism. I, I often encounter a lot of people who are learning Marxism or engaging with it for the first time who have heard of, of course, have heard of Lenin and, and, and probably heard of Lenin's imperialism, but haven't really read it and don't really understand Lenin's uh, tract on imperialism very well. And it leads to this kind of, I, I when I read that line, I was like, yeah, there is a lot of this kind of blind acceptance of Lenin's theory of imperialism. And though, you know, what, what is interesting to me is to say that Lenin's theory or things Lenin wrote about imperialism in general uh, with respect to the concept of like exploiting and exploited nations and the fact that there is, in the, in the final analysis, there certainly is domination of nation by nation rather than this, which even Emmanuel alludes to of the, this kind of weird post-Marxist views that empire uh, like Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, the empire theory, and there's no more imperialism because there are no nations, that whole sort of thing. But obviously, I, I do agree with Emmanuel and his analysis here that there are some uh, misunderstandings with respect to investment um, and the kind of over fixation on investment as imperialism uh, in the case of Lenin. But I, I wonder your thoughts on, on all of that, because it's interesting to see how these debates are developing and how people are, are, you know, responded to Emmanuel's critique and, you know, accused him of misreading Lenin and all this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's, 
it's always popular to hate on a manual <laughs> and there's always like you know there's so many different of course yeah uh yeah. like different like you know epic you know monograph you know destroying Emmanuel's arguments you know? <laughs> uh you know for like the real litmus theory and so on. i don't know I mean, you know people can keep on doing this if it makes them happy you know like uh but uh i mean just for me like i've always enjoyed Emmanuel's writings because like i mean uh i write about sort of like uh you know i mean my area of interest like uh where i've lived and so on and my family it's like uh, ukraine and russia and uh, I, I find it really interesting writing writing about these areas and sort of, you know, and so on. And, and I mean, like Emmanuel's articles uh, work has helped me really understand the sort of processes of like foreign interest uh, from the side of like the Western countries and other countries in, you know, various, you know, economic, based their interest in Ukraine, their interest in Russia, Ukraine, Russia's place in the world. Um, and I mean, this is just like, and I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, I read about different sort of like, and write about you know, economic history and sort of economic news and so on. And I mean, like Emmanuel's works, like, I mean, they just, they just make sense. I mean, they, they're, they're, you know, if, you, if you're talking and, you know, and this is what, like, I don't know, this is what good economic journalists write about, you know, talking about trade surpluses. I uh, talk about, you know, like the, the difficulties of uh, getting enough revenue to pay for imports. Uh, and then the sort of different, uh, you know, like, um, uh, credit problems this creates when you have to take on lots of debt to pay for your trade deficit uh, and you know and and then just the the way in which you know high wage countries they're interested in having this you know pool of low wage labor um, you know to sort of to guarantee you know and this is it's very obvious the way it is in reality I mean if you look at like you know Ukraine and Poland I mean Poland has you know for the past like basically decade or so they've just like attract, they keep on attracting Ukrainian workers to come work in Poland because Ukrainian workers work for like, you know, like three, three times less uh, wages than Polish workers do. And, uh, and that way Polish, Polish wages in Poland sort of rising, uh, but Poland supports various deindustrializing measures and liberalization measures in Ukraine, which destroys industry and then create more migrant workers, right? That are willing to work for low wage in Poland. Um, and then like, you know, and Polish politicians, they, they, they talk about this like very kind of like openly. And I mean, this is like a very obvious, very simple form of imperialism. And I think this is, this makes sense to talk about um, in terms of investments, you know, I mean, like there are investments by like, you know, all kinds of different countries in Ukraine, right? But, but you know, investments by China, investments by like all kinds of countries. And it doesn't really clarify that much their actual kind of, I guess, relation to the country in terms of interest in um, seeing some kind of like, let's say, uh, you know, progressive uh, like economic development in their country. It, it doesn't really say that much, you know, in terms of if we're looking at who's the biggest investor. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's kind of a joke, but it's like a true joke. I don't know. It's real. I mean, like <laughs> that there, there were like Maoists, right? And in the, in the, the 80s and 70s and stuff. And they were like in, in Canada, right? And they like write about Canada, like, oh, Canada's being oppressed. And, and this is serious articles, but like they write about how Canada's, be, Canada's being oppressed by the US because the US has like, you know, X billion dollars amount of investments in Canada and they're exploiting our Canadian workers and so on. Uh, and, you know, we need, to wage a we need to wage a people's war against the, you know, American, you know, finance monopoly, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, this is so stupid, right? Like, <laughs> but like, it, uh, it, it kind of makes sense, I guess, if you think like investments are like, you know, this is the, the way that imperialism works. 
for whatever reason, which is still unclear most of the time, really, um, then sure. But like, I don't know. It's just like, this makes sense. It, it, it doesn't really, I, I mean, the reason I like Emmanuel's work is it, it tries to give an, ex, an explanation for why is it that today we have like some countries that are super, super rich and then the most, most countries are really poor. And talk about rich and poor, it's in terms of like the quality of life of the majority of population. It's not like, just, you know, these like fat cat, you know, capitalists, whatever. No, I mean, like, it's like the average person lives way better in a rich country than they do in a poor country. Um, and like, that's a question that interests me. I mean, in my life, I've, you know, like lived in poor countries for like some of my family lives, lived in rich countries with some of my, some of my family lives. And, you know, that's always struck me. It's like, you know, that's crazy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Emmanuel tries to answer this. Um, and like, it's just much more, much more of a practical theory. Uh, I find um, and yeah I don't know like this sort of yeah this worship of the you know like Leninist theory of imperialism I don't know it's kind of like I, I, I don't even I mean I think it's cool that Emmanuel wrote this critique of it but often I just feel like damn I can't even be bothered to like deal with this because like the people that you're arguing with it's generally not even it's not even good faith argument I find half the time it's just like they really love their theory it's like awesome I don't know like there, there are aspects and you can't argue with them they just like they just want to show they want they want to show you that their theory is correct it's like okay um you know there are aspects of a manual theory that I find kind of like vague sometimes like sometimes I'm not really I'm not really sure how he explains uh the actual like let's say like classical colonialism um but then again, he's not really like dealing with that so much in his big books. The main context of his books is the post-war, post-World War II period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, and then for me, I mean, I don't really, you know, I think it's fine. I can like, you know, research on my own the sort of history of like 19th century colonialism using the different various sort of like approaches that Emmanuel's work has, and it can be productive. Um, but um, yeah, that was answering your question. No, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and all of that, I think, definitely lends itself to kind of like a, a tendency for, you know, people who are interested in studying imperialism from a, Mar a specifically Marxist perspective can tend towards kind of blind worship of, you know, of, of any theory. And I think even to me, it's like there are aspects of, of Lenz here that I think certainly are interesting and kind of relate to the present day. But with respect to reading stuff like what Emmanuel puts forward, you can see the problem with this blind view of investment as imperialism. It has to be, that is the definition of imperialism. I think there have been a lot of interesting, as you're mentioning, uh, you were mentioning kind of the, uh, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the imperial mode of living or the imperial standard of living, that kind of contribution that has been put forward um, somewhat recently and kind of debates around that. I even just think the extent to which uh, Emmanuel gets at the heart of, you know, this problem of super exploitation of the fact that, and this is going to get you into, you know, as we have talked about a little bit before, the whole kind of contention over like the labor aristocracy and the fact that, uh, you know, worker struggle in in the in the global north and the first world is not is not necessarily progressive with respect to consideration on an international scale and wage. Uh, as as the crux of the problem is Emmanuel analyzes it. it it was funny to be in South Africa and kind of engage with some of these debates because I met some Marxists in South Africa and kind of had very you know conversations about this and and always like there was one instance where I was talking with um, some a group of South African Marxist students who were very frustrated that a lot of like global north Marxist theorists 
especially obviously on like a, and I think I, when I interviewed Torkel, uh, Torkel Lawson as well, he, he talked about this, but especially coming from kind of like a Trotskyist tradition, tend to not care about the third world in any capacity and tend to just advocate that like there's this, you know, proletarian universalism and there's no such thing as labor aristocracy. That debate just divides and distracts us, which is the kind of like typical takeaway from engaging with those people. And I agree with you to say like, those, those are the kind of people that I, I tend to not even want to debate or discuss with because you can't, you're, any, any kind of like problematizing of uh, first world workers or, you know, as, as like a privileged class uh, gets into some sort of like a, a complicated thing for them and they can't really wrap their brains around it because to them there's a sort of like universality of worker struggle and, and all that sort of thing. But when you see the, you know, material conditions of a country like South Africa and see the vast majority of people who live there, obviously, as, as we've mentioned throughout, the, the settler population in a country like South Africa lives at, I think you put it really well earlier, it lives like its own sort of labor aristocracy within, uh, you know, a sort of settler colonial context within colonial borders. I think that's very much analyzed by Emmanuel in a very coherent way where he says, to an extent, this is its own labor aristocracy within a settler colonial country, just like the U.S. is in its own way. Uh, it, it's able to have this super exploitation of the Black South African population during apartheid. You mentioned the, you know, the slogan of the of the Boer Wars and the desire to create a, a you know, like a white proletariat. And it, it's funny because the the quote um, the quote about workers unite for white South Africa has come up in many cases. In that case, when there was, you know, the war for the Boers for their own Republic. And then in, in even some cases where there was like a, a labor strike by, uh, by white South African workers in 1922 called the Rand Revolt. And that was when the slogan gets used. And that's a case where, you know, you have a, a white, like a white proletariat, you know, advancing the slogan. So I think that that's definitely interesting to see the extent to which there's a, its own labor aristocracy within a country like South Africa with a settler colonial population advocating very clearly for racist, you know, progression of, of white workers first. And that's very easy. I think people understand that, that in that case, that that's not anything that like a Marxist should be behind just because they're workers. Um, but that obviously gets into a lot of, you know, different questions about the, the reasons why uh, there is this oppression of, of the Black South African working class, primarily by imperialism and simultaneously by, by remaining uh, functions of settler colonialism, even if in the post-apartheid era that has sort of taken a secondary role. These two things are still sort of coexisting in a way that South Africa can be kind of a unique case because it has such a, or as you mentioned, Israel is, is, is you know, another great example with having settler colonialism so clearly, but also playing a, a, a very fraternal and, and complementary role for imperialism in the Middle East. Just to kind of like talk about the reading on the left of, of like Jay Sakai, you know, the overall understanding of uh, the white American proletariat as settlers in every- Yeah, I, don't know. I mean, like I, I, I liked reading Sakai's like book, uh, his articles that can be interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, not that well read about like American history. Uh, it makes sense. I mean, I, I, as I've I've heard like Sakai said that he like you know he likes Emmanuel, right? He Emmanuel. I don't see any way in which like the their writings like contradict each other. 
Uh, I think they're quite like complementary. Um, Sakai doesn't really like focus on the economic aspect so much as Emmanuel does, but you know he just notes how like there's this kind of uh, you know you got like high living standards, high wages of one you know group nation at the expense of like you know exploitation of this like low wage group, which is like you know that's Emmanuel's argument. Uh, he just like and, and Sakai just goes into the sort of historical aspects of it, and you know and this is similar to like you know I mean, Sakai has this whole sort of thing about how like you know how reactionary the American Revolution was. Uh, you know this this is kind of what this article by Emmanuel is all about, um, where you know you have these kind of like you know you know I guess revolutionary movements you can call them, uh, but that are like you know a revolution in in the interest of like you know uh oppressive like settler class um which is what which is what sakai talks about which i think is super interesting um yeah i mean like um yeah i mean like for for me i, I think like the main interest that i have uh in like i mean you know this article uh and so on is uh the sort of it in terms of its analysis of like how like you know imperialism and colonialism and how they work how they relate to like the interests of like sort of mass of the population because you know right now we're in this moment in history where um it seems like the sort of traditional uh division of the world between you know high wage countries and low wage countries is uh quite unstable and it's being questioned by uh various because you know you say like you know like you know bourgeois uh political leaders in different countries um you know i mean like i don't know russian president has now made it into like one of those big things he talks about often as being something bad that he's like trying to like stop or whatever um but uh and then also you know there's a real sense in which it seems like the sort of the grip of the uh high wage countries is in terms of even their own like economy and their own like well-being is kind of like being eroded um and it's yeah and i think it's very interesting reading this article because you can sort of think about like what kind of uh how will capitalism as the sort of you know economic system we live in how will it deal with this kind of erosion of the uh, uh power of, of, of the well the wealth of the first world countries because i guess emmanuel's argument is basically that you know capitalism can survive without the settlers uh it doesn't really need and like the labor aristocracy like capitalism doesn't need this and this is an argument that emmanuel has in all of his works just the capitalism like economically it doesn't require the existence of a labor aristocracy it doesn't require the sort of this division between high, high wage countries and low wage countries this is like only in the interests of the uh, labor aristocracy um in, in terms of like you know wanting to live a better life and so on which is like you know i mean it makes sense uh reasonable interest but um it's in their interest not in the interest of capitalism so and um yeah and i mean this I mean, this is kind of getting a little bit far away, but we can talk about this at some other time. Uh, but in terms of like the political implications of Emmanuel's work, often he's kind of accused of this being this kind of like bourgeois developmentalist and so on. Um, you know, I think that there are kind of, you know, what you can say, maybe it can be called that in Emmanuel's work, but it's a very interesting perspective. And I think it's very relevant today um, in terms of this kind of idea of, um, I guess it's kind of it's it, it, the, the question sort of emerges. This this is a thing throughout this article of the settler colonialism. Is there a and you were talking about this before? Like, is there a sense in which like capitalism is uh, more progressive than this kind of 
um, kind of like non-capitalist, I mean, capitalistic, but also like using lots of non-market mechanisms, exploitation of like uh, certain groups by like a labor aristocracy, settler group. Um, is there a sense in which capitalism is more progressive than this? Um, and, you know, this can, you know, I guess this kind of be the argument. I guess this kind of, this kind of an argument, I think that, you know, modern China kind of has, which is that, you know, we should have more, you know, the kind of framework is often talking about how like we need more free trade around the world, uh, especially for like, you know, Africa and stuff, because Africa, you know, I mean, China makes a big deal about how like they opened up their markets uh, for agricultural goods to, ag to African countries, whereas the US has always kept their markets closed to African countries for African agricultural exports. Um, and China makes kind of a big deal of criticizing the US for selectively applying, I guess, free trade in the interests of the US population, basically. Um, and that's an interesting, it's an interesting question, I think, um, especially in terms of if you're like, you know, a political activist um, in, you know, certain like, you know, different countries, uh, third world and so on is, um, there's just definitely an extent to which this perspective does make sense. Uh, of course, like with the sort of also perspective in the longer term of, uh, you know, as these, you know, a more sort of, I guess, capitalism develops more uh, in various various countries as possible also for the, uh, you know, like working class to become more conscious of the contradictions that result from this and sort of to try and overcome them in various ways uh, towards a more socialistic uh, economy. But um, at the, the way that the world is right now, there are like very large portions of the world that aren't really given the opportunity uh, to, uh, to develop, uh, yeah, kept, like in, in a sort of, I guess, in a, what you can call kind of, th th there's not that much access to markets. I guess this was a kind of a thing with, in Ukraine, where like Ukraine would sort of, you know, there'd be kind of bans on Chinese investment made by the US basically in Ukraine. Uh, and there's kind of this sense in which I guess, I guess you can say to summarize this kind of rambling sort of thing I've uh, been having is that there's a certain extent to which the kind of interests of the first world in uh, preserving the privilege of the, the populations um, has result is still does result in kind of the uh, foreclosure, like the forbidding of plenty of like sort of fairly like rational sort of capitalist developmental sort of uh, aspects in different countries. And we can talk about more about like Emmanuel's thoughts about the limits of capitalism and so on in a, maybe another time. But that's, that's kind of the broader um, relevance that I said I'm seeing in this article, yeah, if that made sense. Hopefully I won't yeah. be called some bad words because of that uh, <laughs> rambling yeah. sort of thing, but- um, No, yeah. no, I hope not. And I would love to discuss that more in the future because I think that the very, prompts a lot of, uh, of significant questions to kind of consider, particularly with the view of, you know, all the, the theories that Emmanuel sort of lends himself to, particularly third worldism and kind of like its its horizons and perspectives. And, and it's funny, you know, to read, as you pointed out, that you have these monographs written against Emmanuel from, from all lenses. Uh, of course, there's the traditional kind of like 
critique and saying that he's undermining the universality of the working class and and whatever but then to read kind of like i don't know you can't necessarily say a left-wing critique or but more to say like this critique that comes up of calling him a a developmentalist, a bourgeois nationalist, whatnot, and to kind of see the considerations of that. Because I think you can read, you can certainly read the last uh, page, the last couple pages of this and see when he when he makes uh, maybe his, you know, political conclusions and says, um, for example, on page 57, where he says, and we can, we can perhaps end it on this note, but his conclusion of saying, if the underdeveloped countries cannot make the most desirable use of these investments, this is not because of the nationality of the capital involved, but because of the particular structures of the recipient countries, and notably the narrow limits of their local market due to low salaries, compared with markets and salaries in the developed countries, whether it is national or international capital is in search of profit and behaves in the same way. And then he, and then he has this last conclusion of saying, those who stress the obnoxiousness of foreign investments in multinational companies are therefore completely out of touch with the reality of the underdeveloped countries, since all capitalist under or semi-developed countries without exception, and even some socialist countries of Eastern Europe are doing their utmost to institute investment codes and multiplying the exemptions and privileges to be granted to attract foreign capital. And those kind of conclusions as you're referencing with respect to like discussing Ukraine today or discussing the way in which uh, African countries or you know other global South countries now, especially with the Belt and Road, are are trying to attract foreign capital, trying to attract investments, but from a specific, you know, from China, of course, and from not necessarily from the United States, uh, and that opens it up to you know a lot of discussions. But I think that's definitely a a good place. I don't know if you have any final thoughts on those quotes, but I think otherwise, I that's pretty much all I have to say on that. We can definitely discuss it more in the future. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just, uh, I, I'm not going to ramble on for too much, but like, it's just one of the really interesting topics is uh, whether the, the sort of how we should view like regional capitalist integration projects um, in, in the third world, you know, and like in the 20th century, you had like the attempts of uh, pan-Arabism, uh, often like spearheaded by different like uh, Ba'athist parties. And this was actually often like opposed actually by like communist parties like the, uh they sort of wanted to have only you know like first of all unity with like the socialist countries and like we shouldn't wear and this was like often quite unpopular uh this stance of the communist parties and uh it's kind of debatable whether that was a correct stance and then today you also have like you know project i mean there was kind of a like project of the eurasian union um in like sort of former soviet sphere um the sort of how we should view that uh, and then also, obviously, there's, there's often very lots of talk about different, you know, African economic integration. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about, like, what should our stance be towards this? Uh, if it's not going to, you know, it should be some kind of, oh, you know, like all capitalism is bad, you know, this is bad. Um, or is there some other different sort of perspective to be taken? Um, yeah, that's kind of how I'd summarize my last thoughts on that. It's really interesting yeah. talking today. Thanks for yeah, it was a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining and I hope to continue talking about it in the future. Yeah, great. Have a great